building a brand or building a company that people really use is an incredible thing. It's an incredible accomplishment. I mean, whether it's a podcast or whether it's a a blog or whether it's a shampoo business, having a thousand true fans and having people really love a brand and something you made is an incredible feeling. And I think for me, the biggest drivers are that. And also everything we do at Caravan has to have a investment back into the planet in some way. The things we're doing, we're also trying to change behaviors. And so if you look at the shower business, an example in high, I think we have an opportunity to be the largest networked personal care device network in the world and have the most impact on consumer saving water in the home more than anything before it. And I think that that drives us as much as the people loving the product. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Leonard Brody is the co-founder of Caravan, a company that's in partnership with Creative Artist Agency. It helps the biggest celebrities build businesses that align with their brands. He's a highly respected entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and best-selling author. Leonard is known as one of the top 30 management thinkers in the world. He has been through one of the largest IPOs in history and has been involved in the founding and successful exit of multiple companies. I started our conversation by asking Leonard about where he grew up and the influences in his early days. Yeah, I mean, there really was. I grew up in Alberta and Canada in a city called Calgary. So it was kind of when I was there, it's probably it was half the size it is now. So it was really a town for all intents and purposes. But I had a really big figure in my life. So there was a very famous Canadian entrepreneur named Israel Asper, Izzy Asper, who was my, technically he was my cousin, but we referred to him as an uncle because he was older. And he was just one of the best entrepreneurs in the history of this country and ended up building quite an empire in broadcast and media. And I built a really nice relationship with him around mentoring. Some of some of it was quite harsh. He was no minced words about behavior and, and responsibility. And I would argue he was probably one of the most influential people in showing me what it meant to be the person that kind of is responsible for keeping the lights on, but is the person who turns them off every night when you leave. And that was an incredible luxury to have, to have someone like that. Was there something you remember or specific instance or just something about Izzy that you always remember that you still carry with you even today? Yeah, I mean, he was... Entrepreneurs are characters by nature. I think also entrepreneurship means something different today. And I I think that gets lost in the weeds a little bit because I think there is a difference between self-employed and being self-employed and being an entrepreneur. I think 20 years ago, there weren't as many opportunities to be an Amazon reseller or... So I think the term gets conflated a little bit between yeah, self-employed. And, and by the way, I think being self-employed is an incredible luxury that's amazing. Entrepreneurship is something different. And, and it was the ambitiousness, the work ethic, the trying to build something. Izzy was trying to build Canada's third television network in 
an economic and political environment that didn't want one. And so he was just hell-bent on building this third network. It was so it number one, it, it always reminded me that at some point you have a North Star that you are pushing towards, and that's really what's driving you because the rest of it becomes noise and just path marks along the way of trying to get to that. And I remember, you know, we were at a, a one of the things with Izzy that that I it's a weird thing to remember, but I but I remember it clearly. I was young, I was probably eight or nine, and we were at a family event. It was like a bar mitzvah or something. And I remember Izzy was sitting in the office of the synagogue working. He was on calls, doing work calls while the bar mitzvah was going on. And I remember thinking, I don't, this is so weird, but I remember thinking, that's super cool. Like this guy's a badass. <laughs> this, this guy doesn't care about this stuff. He's making shit happen in the synagogue office while these guys are eating and dancing. And, and that never left me, you know, the concept of, of him doing that. And after that, we just developed this. It was actually mostly by letter, interestingly enough. We would write letters back and forth to one another. And I still, when he passed away, I still ha- I still have all of them and they were they're still kind of life lessons for me that I look to pretty frequently still today. Yeah, that's uh, interesting amazing to have someone like that in your life and just to be able to seek for for guidance but originally if I'm not mistaken though you went to law school you wanted to be a lawyer. How, how did you go from Wanting to be a lawyer to being an entrepreneur. So I I was told I should be a lawyer and therefore wanted to be a lawyer. And that came from my mother and it came from Izzy a little bit too, who was a lawyer himself and actually practiced. He was quite a successful lawyer before he ever got into, in, into the world of entrepreneurship. And he was a politician as well. He ran the opposition party in Manitoba for, for many years. He was the head of the liberals. And I... One of the stupidest things in my life was I never really understood even what lawyers did because the lawyers I knew were not lawyers. They were entrepreneurs. And so I figured, oh, great. This is this. This looks awesome. You know, even my uncle, my mother's my mother's sister's husband was a lawyer, but he was really an entrepreneur. And then there's about 10 of these guys that were lawyers, but they were they weren't lawyers. They weren't like sitting in a law firm drafting documents and stuff. So I thought that's what lawyers did. And I never really, it just seemed natural that that's what I would do. And when I got into law school, I actually remember I I had a horrible rude awakening because, and I went through a bit of a depression when I got into law school because I realized this is not what lawyers do. And I remember telling a friend of mine that my first week in prison was the same for me as what it would have been like to being the first week of prison. Of, of law school it was right. was like being in the first week of being in prison, like my first week in law school, because I knew I couldn't leave because if I left, I would just a be disappointing myself and disappointing others. But I knew I had to figure a way how to navigate being there without it crushing the soul out of me, and that's how I did it. And I built a business while in law school, which helped me <laughs> didn't help me in the law school side, mm-hmm. but in hindsight, I'm glad I did it because. One of the most important things you learn in law is how to think critically. And in a world where information and product is endless and at complete maximum form, thinking critically is one of the skills that not enough people learn. 
And so that's why you, I think that's why you have so much polarization in the world today. And people just are not great critical. They're not taught great critical thinking Mm. skills. And for whatever hell I went through to be a lawyer, that was the one gift that I think I could never, ever learn anywhere else. Talk to me about, or take me back to those, I guess it was late nineties, internet, early two thousands. And one of the first companies that you were involved with and helped build and and fa- find and go public. Tell me that experience. Yeah, so I my internet career began in libraries because I was, even as a kid, I was an information hog. And I wasn't really a nerdy kid. I was actually very involved in sport. There was just something about information that interested me. And so I would commonly go to a library and just sit and read. And I'd stick my face in a bunch of books and I'd just be reading stuff. And there was a terminal, I remember, at the university, at Queen's University, where I went did my undergrad. So this is 1989, 1990. And it had AOL and I believe Prodigy on it. Gosh, yeah. And and I remember thinking, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. Like I can just pull all of this stuff in one place. And that hooked me. Like my my career as an internet entrepreneur began in a, because of the library, and I started doing coding and building telnets and BBSs and you know the stuff that was pre HTML. And then as HTML started becoming popular, I finished my law. It, it really coincided with me finishing my law degree in the mid nineties, and I was invited to join the original sort of operating and founding team of a e-com business called Onvia. Stepped in, grew that business. It was just perfect timing. We grew it to several hundred millions in revenue, took it public on NASDAQ. And I was 27 at the time, hmm. 28, talking about going, like, I mean, I knew nothing. I mean, I, I, knew, I knew less than nothing. You know, like, I remember one of our investors, one of the VCs, walked into the room and was talking about, as soon as we go public, we're going to do acquisitions or we're going to grow. I'd never, I'd never thought of that. Like I was like, that's genius. You can just grow by buying companies. I was like, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. Because what we're doing is such hard work. If I could just buy that, it'd be twice the size. Like I remember thinking, one, I was an idiot for not knowing that. And B, just thinking, God, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. And so I was really young and naive because I had built little companies before that. But I had been entrepreneurial as a kid. You know, I used to sell donuts door to door. I like I was always concert promoting or doing little things to make money. And, you know, when, when we were chatting earlier, that's what I said. Like, it was really Entrepreneur Magazine. You know, yeah. this, is, this is the God's honest truth. I grew up reading Entrepreneur. It was one of the things I would read in the library. It was Entrepreneur Magazine because it was the one place where I felt like these are my people. Like, I don't want to be doing what, what the, those people are doing. I want to actually build stuff. And it was the only place when I was in junior high and high school that you could find that kind of content. It just didn't exist anywhere. So it was, in many respects, my entrepreneurial journey began in libraries and with Entrepreneur Magazine, actually. Yeah, I I love that. Doing this show for Entrepreneur Magazine or Entrepreneur Media today for three years, I I don't even know if I ever mentioned the first job I ever found, because I was like you, I would just devour Entrepreneur and really look at that type of person as someone who I wanted to be and found my first job selling for a female entrepreneur who had a sports marketing business and 
I worked out of my home at a time when that wasn't really fashionable or, right. but entrepreneur really kind of put me on that path. And it was just such an incredible place for information. And I love that you brought that up. And, and, and I want to talk to you specifically, especially about the company now that, that you're building and uh, called Caravan and, and really doing it with creative artists agency, which I love the fact because that was somewhere I worked for a bunch of years as as well and and certainly know some of the folks there and the great things that that they do. And I want you to talk to me how you came up with the idea, how you started it, how everything originated, and then about the business itself. Sure. Can I tell you one little story about Entrepreneur Magazine? Absolutely. I was reading a story in Entrepreneur Magazine when I was in my undergraduate. So this is kind of, or that's what Canadians call it, I guess, college. And and (laughs) I was, so you're talking now, this is 1989, 1990. And there was a story in Entrepreneur Magazine about a guy who ran the college music program for record labels. And I kept thinking, sorry, he was running the beer programs. He was running the beer programs for college beer, like selling beer to to frats and whatever. And I thought, super interesting. And I thought, why don't record labels have this? Because somebody needs to service college radio. And then I discovered through research, they do. In the US, the US guys had record reps, just like the beer companies had reps. So I literally that afternoon left the library. I was mowing lawns or whatever I was doing at the time. I took the phone book from Toronto out of the library because I was in Calgary for the summer at the time, took the phone book out, the yellow pages, and it had a listing for record companies. And I called every single one and every single one was like, beat it. Come <laughs> and I, I parked it. And then, cause I was going back to Toronto to go to school. So I went back to Kingston, which is two hours outside of Toronto, took that phone book with me, like the, the one from Toronto And I called, everyone said no. And then I called MCA Records. Hmm. And the head of promotion and publicity happened to answer the phone because for some reason people were out or they were in Scarborough, Ontario at the time. So this was MCA in Canada, which was a big label. Sure. This guy kind of got a kick out of my chutzpah, like calling and saying, hey, you should have a college record program and I want to run it and da-da-da-da-da. And here's my experience, which was zero. (laughs) And and he said, oh, that's cool. Do you mind sending me an email? And I'm like, tell you what, I'm going to get on the bus. I'll be there in two and a half hours. Can you meet? And he was, and he kind of laughed and he was like, Sure. So I got on the bus, took me two and a half hours to get to Toronto. And that was my first real kind of shtick as an entrepreneur, which came out of an article in Entrepreneur Magazine in a library. So it began my journey into the world of entertainment and CAA. And so to, to connect the dots, I sold my last company, which was a media software and AI business, to the Anschutz group of companies in Denver and Los Angeles which is really one of the largest live sport and entertainment companies in the world and holding codes and worked for them for on an earnout for four years. Again, proving my theory that I was a terrible employee and just got to know the folks at CA really well. And CA and Anschutz actually ended up buying a business together. And CA had, it was just about the time 10 years ago when they started experimenting and building companies, and for people who don't know creative artists, it's 
certainly one of the largest, if not the largest, sport and entertainment agency in the world. And anything that happens behind a, or in front of a film and TV camera sort of passes through that in sports and their client list is, is kind of a who's who in those worlds. And traditionally, the, the commercial interest of a client was usually endorsement or licensing. or But as clients started building their own direct audiences in social media, it became clear that for some, building their own companies was a better venue and that it, CAA was well-served to be involved in that part of the journey for the client. And so there was a partner there that I got to know really well named Michael Yanover, who's still there today and my partner in Caravan. And Michael said, you know, we've been doing this, but I've been doing them one by one. He started in the early days building things like Funny or Die for Will Ferrell. And and he said, you know, we'd really like to build this in a way that we can systematize it, take more swings and have an approach to it that was more thesis driven than just doing one offs. And so he approached me. I fell in love with the idea. We set up, he and I, CAA and I co-founded Caravan together with a couple of other folks. And we've been doing it for five years. And basically, we we co-found science-backed companies with the world's most iconic people. Give me an idea. So you come together with uh, CAA, you start Caravan, you start this company, which I, I love the concept behind it. What was that like initially? And what was the first deal that you guys did? Yeah, so we it was literally like drinking through a fire hose. It was because there was so much pent-up demand inside the agency to build stuff. It took a while to navigate how to do it, how to do it well, like how to do it with the client's best interest at heart to build things that the market wanted. And these things are hard. You're making them from scratch. You know, you're not investing in something that's three million in revenue already. You're zero in revenue and zero in product. And so, I would say our first couple of years were kind of the baby steps to figuring this all out, and also figuring out the organizational behavior of how to work properly with CAA, because it's a it's a massive blessing to be partners with them. But it's you know you have to really understand how it works in order to make sure to deliver well on, on your commitment to them. So that took us a little bit of time. Then the first, the first company we really ended up building was, uh, we did a couple. One, one was a, a game studio called Blue Line. We have a lot of gaming heritage inside Caravan. My partner, Pauline Moeller, was the chief operating, chief operating officer of EA Sports and Zynga. And so we had a lot of really good games people. And we, we had a thesis in the world around match three games. And the most recent product of Blue Line was we released a really cool trivia product in partnership with Apple for Tom Hanks called Hanks 101. And uh, great product, super interesting. It's kind of the future of Trivial Pursuit. And that's a great example. It was one of the first things we did but it ended up taking a couple of years to get it to market because of the development and the time and spending time with Tom and spending time with Apple and making sure you got it right. And so ironically, one of the first things we did came to market only 10 months ago, 11 months ago. Yeah, it's it's incredible how long, obviously, some of these things take. And, you know, in terms of you and building some of these celebrity businesses, I know you really look at it from a different angle. You look at it from 
from what I understand, you tell me, but you look at it from finding out the idea, the business, the science behind it, and then you fit in the celebrity instead of the celebrity saying, Hey, I want to go start my own, you know, wine or whatever it might be. Right. Is that true? Yeah, 100%. We we have a couple core questions we need to answer before we do something. So the first is does the world need this? Is it a good product? Does it is it defensible? Does it have does it have a reason it should be in the world? Secondarily, we look at what's the science behind it? Is there something defensible um, that is more than just we're making another consumer product? Then we look at how does this fit client needs and, and how do we fit clients into that business? And is it a good fit for a, a talent adjacent business? And then we look at, are we the right people to build it? Are we the right people who actually know, do we have the skill set? Because we can get through all of those answers positively. We'd have a crazy great idea, really good market demand, great science, great talent associated. We just may have no experience. And so, for example, we don't do a lot of beauty and color cosmetic at Caravan. We just don't have the skill set. And so we we could follow those three things and we would probably say no to it if it ended up being beauty and color cosmetic just because we're not good at it. We don't have the skill set. Yeah. What's been your favorite deal that you've put together or business that was most exciting to you, might still be most exciting. Anything stick out? That's like asking a parent who their favorite child is. They all have one. <laughs> That's true. I guess they all do. Um, <laughs> I would say there are a couple for me that were just personal note, incredibly valuable and, and, and exciting for me personally. One was a company we just launched a year ago into the market called High. And it's it's actually good to good analog for how we think as a as a, as caravan. It's probably a good way to map out our process. So we're super interested in old utilitarian categories that hadn't seen a good refresh in a while. We were always interested in that. We started digging into that, and we got onto this track in the shower space. We were just fascinated by the shower space. And the more we peeled the layers off that onion, the more excited we got. So turned out it was a $15 billion industry that hadn't really been innovated in for many years. And the reason, the interesting insight, the reason there was no innovation was because there's no electricity in there. And because there's no electricity in there, there's only so much you can do with mechanical mm. engineering. Interesting. The second thing we thought was super interesting was the massive impact that humans have through showering on the environment. It was mind-blowing to me to learn, one, it's the biggest use of water in the home, more than your washing machine, more than your dishwasher. And it's there's these clutch moments where we waste a ton of water that could easily be fixed without changing your experience. And then we looked at it and said, like, there's this really interesting opportunity to build a consumables business that becomes the world leader in delivering vitamins and minerals and essential oils through water. And we built that all together. We created the first appliance in your home that makes its own electricity, is carbon offsetting the minute you put it on the wall, and is this gorgeous shower experience that is 10 times better than what you have now and will end up saving you 34% on water, verifiable. And we ended up creating one of the only companies in the world that can audit the reduction of a natural resource to the point mm -hmm. where it can be audited, where you can say, Robert saved 
34,000 gallons, and we can audit it at the sensor. And that was just a company that we got super knee deep in, super excited about. The business is now in its just beginning its second year, and we're negotiating large retail deals. And it's just amazing to see that product come to life and to see the good in the world that it's going to do at scale while uh, thinking that we were talking about it two years ago on a napkin. Yeah, it's, uh, it is it is amazing how many businesses come to fruition from that, from back of a napkin or just an idea and thought and seeing them be successful. And in terms of what you see now, because you see a lot of ideas, a lot of businesses, there's obviously working with CAA, a lot of opportunities that come to the table. Is there something at this point in time today, 2023, that you're really focused on tech-wise? I know obviously AI, or is it? Is there something specific that you look at or are really interested in right now? From the short answer is lots. I mean, there's lots of stuff just in the maximization of how you sell product. I would say to me, unless you're one of the core developers of the AI learning systems, everything you're doing is a feature. For the most part, you've got nine companies in the world that are writing the code that's really doing the hard work on machine learning and stacks on on deep learning. So we will always utilize AI wherever we can as a leg up and advantage to provide a better experience. But I would say the piece of technology that that we're the most interested in right now is blockchain. And I think what blockchain does is it rewrites the consumer engagement and consumer loyalty business. And so if you get that tool right, it creates a relationship with the brand that has you could have done in individual ways before, but never in one easy deliverable. Like a blockchain, blockchain allows you to become a co-op, a digital fan club, a loyalty program, a affiliate network, all in and and actually have that unit that that's all packaged in be saleable in and of itself. Because if that one unit that does all those things, that has those rights in that token, is also a piece of art by the artist or a individual remastered track is associated with the with that piece. That's a very cool way of not having to have your airline loyalty card with you, but having a unique piece of art designed by whomever, Tom Hanks or Carrie Underwood, that sits in your pocket that in and of itself has an asset value on top of all of these other things. And and the thing the thing that I talk about a lot is, you know, we're only on this planet for 80 or 85 years. So what we think of as historically normal is historically very abnormal. And so loyalty programs are very young. In the 60s, there were virtually none. The 70s, you started seeing some programs come up like Canadian Tire in Canada and the airlines starting to get to adopt to it. I think this is the next wave of that. I think you're going to start to see in the next five, three to five years, people really get that right and really figure out how to, if direct to consumer was a big growth wave in consumer product where you went from restricted to infinite product, I think the way that you're going to see the next big bump in consumer is how people manage to build brands around physical goods and blockchain. 
I think that's a one thing we're looking at. And I think we're also keeping one very close eye on the interaction between physical, like omni-channel stuff, physical retail, and how that ties to online purchase. And then obviously influences, you know, our business. And so we're, we're focused on that. But I would say if you had to make a bet today, it's blockchain for, for me. What's your favorite part about what you do now? And, and obviously caravan, but but in terms of this business, what is it that excites you the most or brings you the most joy? Because I can I can feel your energy about what you're doing, but is there something specifically that you just it gets you out of bed? It, it really is what you enjoy the most. Yeah, I would say for me, my brain just tends to work better when I'm working on multiple things where I can see something. You know, part being partners with CAA is a great blessing because it gives you the ability to have intel and insight into, into things you normally wouldn't have. And so we can start to see data around where the world is going and starting to think about making things that move in that direction that become things that people love and building a brand or building a company that people really use is an incredible thing. It's an incredible accomplishment. I mean, whether it's a podcast or whether it's a, a blog or whether it's a shampoo business, you know, having a thousand true fans and having people really love a brand and something you made is an incredible feeling. And I think for me, the biggest drivers are that. And also everything we do at Caravan has to have a investment back into the planet in some way. Like the things we're doing, we're also trying to change behaviors. And so if you look at the shower business, an example in high, I think we have an opportunity to be the largest networked personal care device network in the world and have the most impact on consumer saving water in the home more than anything before it. And I think that that drives us as much as the people loving the product. But the one thing I would say, I say this to my friends who are entrepreneurially interested, like once, and you would know this having having built companies yourself. When you're an employee, someone can there and someone says, did you have a good day or bad day? You can say, I had a good day or a bad day. Like that's clear. When you're an entrepreneur, you are dealing with multiple dumpster fires every day and multiple amazing things. And so you have to walk out of that day and say it was net neutral, net positive, or net negative. There is no positive. The number of days where you say, I had an amazing day, if you're being truly honest with yourself, are few and far between because you've already had five dumpster fires that morning that you're dealing with, and then you've had six amazing things. So that's a net positive day. Is it, do I have day? Like, I can't think of a day where I don't have a dumpster fire that we have to deal with versus, you know, the same day we'll have 16 amazing things happen. And I think that that's so, I think the rise in mental health issues with entrepreneurs mm-hmm. is because there is this bravado that goes with entrepreneurship that people are just dishonest about. Like, people don't talk enough. Like, how many entrepreneurs do you meet who you say, how's it going? Oh, we're killing it. It's killing it. No, you're not. Like, you're not like, Yes, maybe 10% of the people you meet are killing it, but even they've got 16 dumpster fires they just dealt with in the day. So it's, I think being an entrepreneur is managing the art of understanding the calculation between dumpster fire and amazing. Yeah. And that's and that's kind of the challenge. Without a doubt, I, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because 
we do have so many entrepreneurs that listen to this show or people who really want to jump into the game even more so and be an entrepreneur, something's holding them back. And, and you're right, being an entrepreneur, it's a roller coaster ride and, and there's really tough days and so many, you know, even I just think back of some of the people who have been interviewed on this show from you know, the founder of Lululemon, they were going to go bankrupt five times. You know, imagine those days, how hard it was. But imagine, you know, they didn't, that person didn't pick themselves off the mat or others who, but you're really, it's really true. The the mental aspect of it, mental health. And if you can understand like what you just said, that you're going to have to deal with that. And it sounds like you've been able to do that that's going to help you be more successful because it's very hard. There's so many people who you have one dumpster fire and they're closing up shop. Right. Yeah. And it seems like that was something you learned maybe from your uncle, cousin, uncle, right? <laughs> when you first yeah. started. I think that's true. I actually think there should, somebody should invent a dumpster fire entrepreneur hotline. So when, you have that moment where that first thing happens to you that's really shit. You can call and there's 15 entrepreneurs because don't worry, you're gonna you're gonna have 10 of these, or here's how we dealt with it. And that is the difference between being self-employed and being an entrepreneur. Because the question is, is someone who owns a dry cleaning store, a small dry cleaning shop in Uniondale, New York, is that an entrepreneur or is that person self-employed? Or is someone who's an Amazon reseller self-employed or an entrepreneur? And I think there is a distinction between the two. And I think you live in a very luxurious time where you can be self-employed. Like, But that's different to me than saying, I'm going to change a category. I'm going to build a billion-dollar company. I'm, because there are far less dumpster fires in the self-employed world than there are in the entrepreneurial world. And yeah. so that's... It's a tough racket, you know, and and I think you, I did it because I was unemployable. Like, I just didn't have the gear in my head that understood what it meant to be an employee. It just, it never, it never registered for me. You know, I was, I was, we were chatting earlier and I was saying to you, like, I just, I didn't, I don't understand parties. I don't understand what people do at parties. And I never understood what it meant to be an employee. Like, I'm going to show up every day. You're going to tell me, like, it sounded like indentured slavery. Like, you're going to tell me what to do and you're going to pay me a couple bucks to do it. And But why do I care? Like, why am I here? What's my... I've never understood that. Even people who work for me, I've never understood why they do it. Like, it was just... I think it's just people's brains are wired differently. Yeah. And I think you're, you're absolutely right. I think there's different people. I have this with my wife all the time. I'm like, why don't you go? I mean, she technically now is an entrepreneur because she sells real estate. She's a, a real estate agent for this Douglas Elliman real estate firm in New York. And, and, and you really are running your own business. So it's entrepreneurial. But she's always like, you're the entrepreneur. You go build a bit. I'm a soldier. Like, you know, and I'm like always saying to myself, just like you said, I can ne- I want to Life's short. If you're lucky, like you said, you get 80 years or like, you know, just go try and create something new, try and build something new, try and do that. But with that comes, like you said, dumpster fires, challenges, all of these things that you have to put up with and deal with 
and pick yourself up off the mat. And I will say the one thing I've noticed is the people who I've interviewed who have been able to pick themselves off the mat because they all went through major challenges like yourself, like you've talked about. The ones that picked themselves off the mat kept going and continued even on those tough, tough days, which the majority of them are those days, are the ones Mm. that have been successful. And you know, I want to ask you just before I let you, you go with all the great advice you've given, if you were to give advice now to an aspiring entrepreneur who, looking back at yourself, late 80s, looking at a business opportunity, looking to become an entrepreneur, yeah, what advice would you give that person? I answer this question exactly the same all the time. I think the biggest mistake that entrepreneurs make or the entrepreneurially interested is connecting what they want to do in their venture to their personal life goals. There are core questions you have to answer. Like, do I want to have kids? Do I want to have people reporting to me? Do I want to travel? How much time do I need to be on the road? How much money do I really need to make before that law of diminishing return kicks in? And I think there's an interesting analog in this, which is if you look at the immigrant population over the last hundred years of the United States and Canada, the most a typical entrepreneurial success rate is about 10 to 15%. But in the immigrant population, it's significantly higher. And why is it higher? It's higher because, and some people would say it's, you know, it's work ethic and they've got nothing else. And it turns out the reason it's higher is because. When those dumpster fire moments happen, the immigrant entrepreneur knows exactly why they're doing what they're doing. They have generally two financial goals, a roof and food for their family and education for their children. And as long as they have those two things as their guiding, meaning that is their life goals and their life goal is directly tied to the outcome of the business. And that's why I think you see a much higher success rate in that population population, because I think the people who are, this is why I was trying to draw the distinction between entrepreneurship and the self-employed, because I think when you say to yourself and you're honest and you say, okay, I really do want a family. I want kids and I want to be a parent. I want to be there. That knocks off a whole bunch of stuff that you can't do entrepreneurially. I don't want to travel as much. That knocks off a bunch of stuff. And then you can ask yourself the question, like, how much money do I really want and need? Because Money has, to each individual, a very clear, sharp curve of diminishing return. And if you say to yourself, you know what, I can live a great, I live in Des Moines, Iowa, I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma. If I can make 300 grand a year, I'm like golden. I'm the happiest I'll ever be. And then I know what I need to do to deliver on those goals. And I think that is the biggest mistake, is not connecting your personal life interests and outcomes to the venture you're trying to start. And that's why the rate of failure is so high, I would argue. Yeah, no, super interesting, super interesting. Leonard, appreciate you coming on How Success Happened. It's been a pleasure bringing me back to my CAA days as well. You're with a great organization, as you know, and uh, Caravan, I continue, uh, I'd love to continue to see what you guys do and build and grow. And it just sounds like such an amazing place. So 
thank you so much for your time and, and sharing with us a lot of great insight. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman, that's R-O-B-E-R-T-T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.